Amen. Hey, and good morning to all of y'all joining us online here at The Story. I want to thank our band who uh, sounds amazing today, and they've led us in worship uh, in an amazing way. You, you look amazing too as well. Next time, shoot me a memo or something so, <laughs> so I can join in the, the fun. I also own a tuxedo, Nathan, so that'd be nice. Um, <laughs> uh, you look amazing. You sound amazing. I'm so grateful for, for you guys and for everybody here that makes Sunday mornings work. Ever since March 15th, we've been here. I've lost count how many Sundays in a row. It's been a grind. It's been hard. But 2020 has been hard for everybody. Nothing works in 2020, including the internet, which I'm told today is having some issues. Like across the country, people are having connectivity issues. And if you lose us in this live stream, um, what we're going to try to do is if we have regular sort of outages or we're unable to live stream this, we're going to rebroadcast 845. So if you're gathered with family and friends, you can still worship during this hour. Just keep checking back to Facebook and YouTube, and you'll find us there if you lose us in this live stream. It's all over the country. It's not just us. It's uh, it's kind of a crazy morning. It kind of fits in 2020 um, because everything else has gone wrong. So why not this? 2020 has been just the gift that keeps on giving, right? And uh, we say that kind of as a joke, but I want to tell you about something that I decided this week to, uh, to do that may not fit the narrative of 2020. I've decided to name and claim this year as a gift, as a gift from God. I know it sounds insane. Maybe that's where we are now, but (laughs) I have decided 2020 is actually a gift in spite of it all, in spite of COVID, the economic meltdown, the viral videos, the racial injustice, civil unrest, protests in the streets. Like we're all worried and anxious and depressed and we're all worried about our kids being too isolated. We're worried about our parents not being isolated enough, some of us, and there's just anxiety all around. And as, as if that weren't enough, we've got like, um, you know, we've seen fires, we've seen explosions, uh, we've seen storms this uh, week, especially in Louisiana. Uh, there, there's like an asteroid barreling toward planet Earth, apparently, which even if it hits us, may not be the worst thing that's happened in 2020, which is how you know it's been a year. Like <laughs> if an asteroid hitting you is not the worst thing that has happened, that's how you know 2020 has been a, a rough year. So where do I get off calling 2020 a gift? How can I in good conscience call a year like this one something good? Well, I'll just speak for myself and others in my life that I've been talking to about this. This year has been an extraordinary time of deeper learning, a time of new understanding. Let me tell you a little bit more what I mean. Um, What this year has taught me is that adversity is inevitable. And if you don't stand on the firm, eternal principles of God, if you don't stand firm on some foundation that can be trusted and can weather the storm, when the winds blow, you will be shaken. You will be rocked. I have been this year. Everyone I know has been this year. And that's not, you know, we're not just all bad people or whatever. I've had good days and I've had bad days, but I've noticed On those bad days, when I've lost my footing or I've forgotten about the foundation on which I stand, I am tossed and turned by the winds of chaos that blow in the news media and in the streets and everywhere else. I'm more likely to be affected adversely by adversity when I lose my footing on my foundation, my eternal foundation. And I follow in those instances, I follow my feelings. So 2020, if nothing else has been a really wildly emotional 
year, right? It's been emotional. Every Sunday I'm here, I'm wiping tears off my face like never before, just because there's so much going on. Emotion is such a powerful thing. Emotion comes from God. It can be a good thing, but emotions make a terrible driver of ethics. And what I'm talking about today is foundational ethics on which we stand that allow us to stand firm through the storm. And emotional ethics are inherently unethical. If, if your ethics are built around emotions that change, then every time the winds blow, you'll change with them. Ethics and, and these principles are sort of these core ideas, these formational principles that are like a lighthouse that stands firm that stands tall and steady through the storm. And when you're blown about by the winds, when you're threatened by the waters rising, when you lost your way and you get disoriented, you look to the lighthouse like a true north, a north star, and you get your bearings again. You find your way again. That's what I'm talking about when when I say the firm foundation. Rather than just um, giving way to emotions and feelings, which has been so, so easy to do, this year. 2020 has taught me the importance of standing firm on some principle, standing firm on what we believe on a foundational, uh, ethical kind of um, a way. So uh, 2020 has taught me this, and I'm grateful. And what I hope for is that the next time we have a year like this, God forbid, knock on wood, whatever, you know, sign of the cross, whatever, I hope we don't. But the next time a storm comes through, I pray we'll be ready. I want to be more ready. I want you and your family to be more ready. I want our church to be more ready so that we're not left to react emotionally to every headline that we see. But instead, we can absorb what we see standing firm on some greater foundation that is not changing with every feeling that we feel. And this is really, really important stuff that we're talking about because not only will future storms come, this storm's not even over yet. We've still got an election. (laughs) How about that? And I don't know if you have felt this, but I have felt torn in different directions. The problem with feelings is they create in you a sense of duplicity because you can feel more than one thing at a time and your feelings lead you to hold competing, conflicting ideas at the same time. I wake up one morning thinking, I got to vote for that guy. By the end of the day, I'm back to voting for the other guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so pro-America one moment and the next moment I'm ashamed of America and I'm so pro-police one moment and the next moment I'm pro-protester protesting the police. I just don't even know what to think when my ethics are driven by feelings. But God calls us to stand firm. It's something true, unwavering and unaffected by the circumstances around us. And to get there, we need to know what that core principle is. And that's what this series is about. The series is called In the Image of God. This is part two of this very important series. And uh, the foundation as Christians on which we stand, as we're talking about throughout the series, is one of life. We are fundamentally pro-life. And I know what that sounds like. And what you hear when I say that is only one small piece of the pie because a Christian ethic of life runs from womb to tomb. A Christian ethic of life isn't just about one issue. We believe that every single human life is sacred. Every single human death, especially untimely death, is tragic. And that's based on Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God made human beings in his image. So it's not because 
humans are somehow special in our own right. It's that God makes every human life in his image. So every single human life, regardless of their religious persuasion, their beliefs, their behavior, every single human life bears the divine image of God. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I talked about it last week. Um, and you can go back and hear that message. Actually, I would highly encourage you to do that sometime because you won't understand this week until you hear last week. In part one of this series, um, we did talk with Alan Hirsch, a legendary figure in evangelical Christianity who's, who's shared with us just um, that one of the issues with Christians sometimes is that when we tell the gospel story, we start with Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, instead of starting with Genesis 1, when God made us in his image. And so what we have is a reduced story that's still true. It's part of the story, but the reduced story is that a good God saved bad people. When the real story, when we start in Genesis 1, is that a good God restores the good image of the people he loves and created in his image. And that's a much better story. And listen, once you internalize that story, instead of the reduced one, you begin to see every single human being you meet in person and online, even the people you're prone to hate, the people you think are the problem as image bearers of the God you love. And then every single interaction you have with them will change. And their perception of the Jesus you claim will change. And I believe the world around us will change with it. So the passage I mentioned earlier, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is really the foundation of our pro-life ethic. The African-American theologian, Dr. Crawford Loritz, summed it up this way. I thought this was concise and beautiful. It says, the conceived must live the living must be cared for, and the poor and oppressed must be defended. This is the heart of God for all of humanity. So in future weeks throughout September, I'm going to be applying that ethic to some of the most emotional hot-button issues of our time, right? The ones that get carried away online or whatever. Abortion, immigration, racism, and gender. We're going to talk about those things in September. Before we get to those specific issues, we need to do a little bit more work today. So this is going to be a little bit of a homework heady kind of a sermon, but this is so important as we learn more about the ethical framework that we claim as Christians and what it means. So what does it mean to live a story that begins in Genesis 1 rather than just Genesis 3? All right. So we talked about Genesis 1 so far today and last week. We do need to talk about Genesis 3 and what happened when the paradise, the perfect intimacy between God and humanity was broken up by sin. So this is the story. Genesis 3, starting in verse 6, I'll read through verse 13. This is where Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit. All right? So you can join me with your Bibles or Bible apps or just read along on the screen. When the woman, this is Eve, when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? <laughs> and he knew where he was. He just wanted the man to fess up. And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. 
And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Before this moment in history, Adam and Eve shared um, perfect intimacy with God. They knew God, God knew them. They had nothing to fear, nothing from which to hide. They had never hidden from God before. They didn't even know they were naked. They were just pure, innocent and loving God and one another. But the moment they made their choice to follow their own appetite instead of trusting God's word, the moment they chose to seek their own emotional impulse over the promises of God, something broke. Something broke. And that's really the question, what broke? Because we know immediately they, uh, they hid from God. Immediately they lost everything that they had enjoyed before. I'm gonna take a little pause sidebar here and address the question on the mind of every skeptic watching right now. Every skeptic is at home going, but why was the forbidden fruit in the garden at all? Why would a loving God set people up to fail at all? Why not leave that particular tree out of the garden and just have paradise? And this isn't exactly what this message is about, but it still applies. And I know some of you will not move on from this question. It's asked every time I talk about Genesis 3. And the point is very simple. Look, absent the forbidden fruit, the Garden of Eden would have been more like a prison and less like a paradise. Because even the sweetest utopia turns dystopian whenever there's no exit door, whenever there's no uh, opportunity to choose otherwise. Love requires an out clause for the beloved. That freedom is required in order for love to be real. And so the, the, the forbidden fruit is actually symbolic of the out clause. The question then is what happened when Adam and Eve chose the out clause as we all have in our relationship to God? What happens then? Does something fundamentally change within us? Do we lose the image of God with which God made us, in which God made us? Does something more than the trust escape us? Adam and Eve heard God coming and they hid. God found Adam, found him. He knew where he was, but he found him. And Adam's response was immediately to blame the woman and God in the same sentence, which is hilarious and also tragic and sad, but also hilarious because men have been blaming women and God for their, their hardships ever since that day in Eden. Adam said, this woman you gave me. And men have been blaming women and shaking their fists at heaven ever since. And then God says to Eve, what happened? And Eve said, the devil made me do it. And ever since humans have been deflecting, gaslighting God, blaming other people for their problems, saying the devil made me do it, whatever excuses we can come up with. Because when sin took hold, shame took over. When sin took hold, shame took over. But does that mean that the sin of Adam and Eve canceled out the image of God within them? When we choose the out clause, does God choose it too? The Bible's clear about this. The answer is absolutely not. So we as Christians believe that it doesn't matter how sinful a person is or how a person's behaved or how often they go to church 
Every single person still bears the image of God. God in us is the only thing that can't be canceled by this world we're living in, somewhere deep inside. Remember last week um, when, when uh, Alan Hirsch joined, and Alan Hirsch is uh, born Jewish, He's, uh, his family's Jewish, and, and he, he joined us and he said that even Adolf Hitler bore the image of God. The first thing you should ever say about Adolf Hitler who became a monster, is that somewhere inside that monster was the image of God and not some kind of uh, boiled down, reduced image of God, but the full image of God was still inside the monster. This is extraordinary. And the biblical evidence or uh, case for this could not be clearer. Genesis 9, 6, this is after the fall, after the flood, just everything hit the fan. God still said, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. The image of God was still there after the fall. Later in the New Testament, after this world killed Jesus, Jesus' brother James said in James 3.9, with the tongue we praise our, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. When you curse a human being, you curse the image of God within them. So I just put it this way. The sins of our past may have disguised and distorted the image of God in us, but sin cannot diminish or destroy the image of God in us, right? So in other words, your behavior, your morality has no effect on how much of the image of God you have in you. You cannot split God in half. He cannot be broken up. He cannot be reduced. He's either in us or he is not. And the Bible's promise is that somewhere underneath all the disguises, all the shame, all the pain, all the lies, there still exists the image of God with in us, it has not been broken up by human brokenness. What this means, <laughs> unbelievably, is that not only did that monster Adolf Hitler still have the image of God within him, after he became a monster, his life was still as valuable and worthy to God as Mother Teresa's was. He had just as much image of God in him as Mother Teresa did, and his death was just as tragic to God as Mother Teresa's was. This is otherworldly. This doesn't make sense in the world that we live in, especially the cancel culture environment that we live in. This is amazing. And as far as I can tell, only Christians and Jews believe this to be the case. Only Christians and Jews believe that every human life bears intrinsic, sacred, and, and equal worth regardless of your output, regardless how much you make, what you do with your life, who you hurt, how many mistakes you make, none of that changes God's worth within you. I think this is an exclusively Jewish and Christian belief system. And I don't say that to disparage other worldviews. I say that to convict us for missing this. Because how many of us have settled for a lower worldview that says some people are worthy of respect and dignity, some people have integrity, but other people, the ones I don't like, the ones I don't care so much about, the ones who stand in the way of my politics, they're disposable. We settle for that worldview all the time, and that is not the ideal of the Judeo-Christian worldview that stands apart in this world. Muslims, who I have a lot of respect for, Muslims believe in a version of this, but they also believe that good works, good behavior, good morals, 
up your value, up your status in the eyes of God and make you more worthy of God's love, protection, and provision. Um, Other kinds of worldviews like nationalism, for example. Nationalism says, um, you know, maybe all human life matters, but American human life matters a little bit more. Nihilism says that nothing really matters at all. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy your life because tomorrow we die. It doesn't really matter. Kill yourself. Who cares? It doesn't really matter at all, right? I had a conversation with a, a man, uh, a friend of mine who's a Hindu man, and we were talking about social issues, and there was a story in the news at that time about states considering euthanasia, assisted suicide at the end of a life. And, uh, and we were talking about this from an ethical standpoint, and I said, look, Christians just cannot abide this because... You know, it just doesn't fit into our worldview. And he said, you know, as a Hindu man, I would totally agree. And it was one of those like harmony moments where it seemed like all the paths were, were, were joining. And, and I just wanted somebody to break out in Kumbaya. It's like, uh, we, we all agree. And, and then I said, well, for us, it's an issue of the sanctity of every human life. And he said something like, well, for Hindus, it's a matter of justice because there's a reason that person on their deathbed is suffering. It's because of something bad they did in a past life. It is a karmic debt. And, and, and if we pull the plug too soon, they'll carry that karmic death forward into their next life. And I'm like, wow, Ixne on the umbayake like that. <laughs> this is different. This is, this is, I respect it, but it is a very different worldview. There is no worldview on earth quite like the Judeo-Christian one. Secular humanists are, are increasingly popular and secular humanism would hold, at least on the face of it, that every human life holds equal worth, although it's not because of God, it's just because we decide it. And the more questions you ask about secular humanism, the more you start to see it for what it really is. If you ask secular humanists questions like, wait, wait, um, so you believe in human flourishing, that's great, but who defines what flourishing looks like? Who gets to make that call? And what happens when basic human rights, like the freedom of speech and freedom of religion, stand in contrast with your view of human flourishing? And what do you do with the people who don't agree with your view of human flourishing? And then you get to the dark sort of underbelly of of what secular humanism is all about, the Judeo-Christian worldview of the sanctity, the holiness, the equal intrinsic worth of every human life truly stands apart. And so my question, I guess, is why? Are we not living accordingly? Why are we not living according to this value that every human life is intrinsically worthy of care, dignity, and respect, no matter whether they're in the womb or on their deathbed, no matter whether they're a billionaire or a beggar, it doesn't matter. Every human life is worthy. No one is disposable. Here's the issue. I think uh, it goes to Genesis 3 and to our veiled view of, the, of reality, the veiled view that we have of, uh, of God's truth. Whenever we sin, it skews our view of God. It doesn't cancel God's image with us, but it covers it up and makes it harder to see. The Bible talks about sin this way, like it acts like a veil or a mask. It doesn't take away God's value in us. It just covers it like a mask would, to disguise it. And that's why in the Jerusalem temple, if you read the Old Testament, all the way back to before the temple, when they had the synagogue, there was always a curtain or a veil separating the holy presence of God from everyday sinners. Even in the Jerusalem temple in Jesus's day, there was a curtain that stood between the Holy of Holies where God really was and everybody else. Only the priests could go back there because if a regular sinner did, they would just drop dead because the holiness of God could not abide the sin of man. But Jesus changed everything. 
Last week I told you from Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so what Jesus came to the earth to do is to show us what we could look like if God finishes his work in us. The image of God in human form. Jesus came to show us an image of that. And in his perfection, in his holiness, he still embraced our sinfulness. When he walked the earth, there was no longer a curtain between the real presence of God and the sin of humankind. He had no curtain between him and the thieves and sex workers that he shared meals with. He changed everything. And when he died on the cross, something cosmic happened. Something happened to our debt when Jesus died on the cross. And Matthew put it this way. He said it was symbolized this way in Matthew 27, 51. Behold, as Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Jesus came and he died, taking on the curse that we deserved on his own innocent back, giving his perfect life away for your imperfect one because your imperfect life matters to him as as though it were perfect. Because you matter that much to him. He came to tear the veil down between our shortcomings and his perfection. But... I don't think this is a message that we've gotten. I've been saying this for five years. Christians are still the best at putting on the disguise. We show up at church, we have our little mask on. And I've been telling you for five years in this building, every time you show up, take off your mask, be who you really are before God. And you're gonna be really confused when you start coming back to church. And I'm like, put your mask back on. I'm not talking about that mask. It's a different mask, right? But what I'm saying is we get so accustomed to living a double life. And God really has never stopped knowing us for who we really are. Jesus came not only to expose our sin, but to end our shame, to tear the veil, remove the mask, to love who we really are. The Apostle Paul put it this way, whenever, this is 2 Corinthians 3, 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Listen, I know there's been mistakes in your past. I know there's been sin. I know there's shame. I know 2020 has felt like anything but a gift. 2020 has felt like a Genesis 3 kind of year, full of hiding, full of shame, full of secrets and darkness, but God is not finished yet with you. He's not done yet. He knows what you've done. He knows where you're hiding, but he comes to find you. I know that this year has felt kind of hopeless. I know that our sin makes us feel so ashamed, but God is not done. This God of the Bible is so much more merciful and more tender than we give him credit for. And that's evidenced even in Genesis 3, where big, bad, mean Old Testament God at the end of Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve break his heart by rebelling against this perfection they had, this intimacy, and choosing their own impulses instead. After that happened, what did God do? Did he hate them? 
Did he want to kill them, destroy them, forget them? No, it says in Genesis 3:21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Before they left the protection of the garden, God wanted to make sure they could survive the elements out there. Even though they betrayed him, he refused to betray them. Even though you feel like you've lost your way, it doesn't mean you've lost your God. It doesn't have to mean that because even when we choose the out clause, God does not. He remains because his love for us, unlike ours for him, is not affected by the emotions of the moment. His love for us is not changed by the circumstances of the day. His love remains steadfast like a lighthouse through the storm. He loves you today as much as he ever has. No matter what you've done to disappoint yourself or to disappoint him, you think it was a deal breaker, but I'm telling you that it wasn't because in the eyes of God, no life is disposable, period. Not even yours. Imagine what a difference it would make if you learn to look in the mirror to see the image of God staring back at you. Imagine what a difference it would make if you learned to watch the news or to interact with people who hold the opposite beliefs of your own and to see the image of God somewhere within them. Imagine. If the drivers of our ethics were no longer emotions or politics, imagine if instead of adding chaos upon chaos, to the world around us. Imagine if we brought peace. Imagine if we brought Jesus. Imagine if we brought the clarity, the grace and truth of Christ to the next storm that comes our way. What a difference it would make. We learn to live as though every life matters, as though every life bears the intrinsic worth of God. If we learned to take care of one another, as though God made each of us in his image. Would you pray with me? Father, your love, your love, your love, God, it's overwhelming. We fail to grasp it because we're wrapped up in our own shame and fear, hiding, hiding. Your love is so much better than our feelings and our emotions and our politics. Your love would never let us dispose of another person like we do. Your love would never let us see ourselves as disposable. Lord, we want to live to a higher calling, to a higher ethic. We want to see your image alive and well, not only in us, but in those that in the past we would have disposed of. When the next storm comes through, Lord, prepare us. Set our feet firmly on the foundation of your truth that every human being is created in your image and equally worthy of respect and care and protection. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.